the logic alone is enough to debunk religion. What I'm going to do, I'm going to prove to you that Islam is the true religion of God, and Christianity is not. Is there any evidence for God, or is it just a matter of blind faith or belief? This is Evidence and Answers with author, speaker, and apologist Pat Zuckerman. My name is Kevin Harris. We have one of the top speakers, thinkers in this area with Pat Zuckerman today. The man when it comes to Christian philosophy and apologetics, Dr. Norman Geisler of Southern Evangelical Seminary. Pat's special guest, by the way, Dr. Geisler will be back with us next week as well. Get this entire series and interview with Dr. Geisler when you go to evidenceandanswers.org evidenceandanswers.org. Yes, Kevin, uh, our special guest is my professor, and anyone interested in the study of apologetics probably knows this name, the name of Dr. Norman Geisler. You know, Kevin, throughout uh, church history, God has raised up men who defended the Word of God, Justin Martyr, St. Augustine, Tertullian, just to name a few, and a man that God has used in our time to defend His Word all over the world is Dr. Norman Geisler, and anyone in the ministry of apologetics has been influenced and mentored by this man, whether directly or through his writing. So it's a great privilege for us to have and him And by the, the way, uh, Norm does not like flowery introductions, and so, <laughs> but he has to put up with us anyway because we love to give them to They're him. They're delightful right. to uh, smell, but dangerous to swallow. <laughs> kind of like perfume, yeah. <laughs> Dr. Geister, good to have you. Thanks. Nice to be with you. Well, let's get right into the show, Dr. Geister, and let's talk about the evidence for the existence of God. And before we begin, let's answer the question, why do we need to study apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Isn't Christianity all about faith, believing in things we have not seen? Well, first of all, um, Jesus commanded it, uh, the Bible commands it, and the world demands it. Uh, the two basic reasons, the Bible, Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all your mind, as well as your heart, soul, and strength. And uh, the Apostle Paul said, I'm set in defense of the gospel. He demonstrated in Acts 17, Peter said, give a reason for the hope that's in you. So the Bible commands it, and the world demands it. Uh, people are not going to accept something by blind faith. They want a reason for why we should get them to accept Christianity. They have all kinds of uh, religions claiming that are true, and uh, they can't all be true. They're opposing, and so we have to give reasons for why they should accept Christianity rather than the others. Yeah, Dr. Guy, so what is the relationship between faith and reason? Well, faith and reason are directly related because nobody has perfect proof for everything, so there's always uh, faith involved. Uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, blind faith is irrational. It's like two elevators, one with the lights on and you can see a floor and people getting out of it. Another one with no lights on, you can't even see the floor and nobody's uh, gotten out of it. Uh, God doesn't call us to take a blind leap of faith into the second one. He take, calls on us to take a step of faith in the light and to the first one. Well, now, apologetics often begins with proofs for the existence of God, and there are three major arguments for the existence of God, the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, and the moral argument. Now, let's go over the first one, the cosmological argument. Briefly explain that argument to us. Well, there are really two forms of it, the horizontal form and the vertical form. The horizontal form says everything that has a beginning had a beginner. Everything that comes to be has a cause. The world world had a beginning. Uh, the world came to be, therefore the world had a cause. The first premise is self-evident. Even the skeptic uh, David Hume said, I never asserted such an absurd thing as that things could arise without a cause. The founder of modern science, Francis Bacon, said that science is a 
search for causes. So that's self-evidently true that everything that has a beginning has a cause. The proof has to be given for the second premise, namely that the world had a beginning. And fortunately, modern astrophysics has provided uh, lines of proof that uh, take it almost beyond reason. The second law of thermodynamics, the universe is running down can't be eternal, would have run down a long time ago. The expanding universe put the motion picture of the universe in reverse, and it contracts logically and mathematically to nothing, no space, no time, no matter, and then bang, there was something. Uh, the uh, radiation echo discovered by uh, Wilson and then Pingeus, for which he got a Nobel Prize that measures the, the very explosion, the wavelength of that very explosion is known to scientists and uh, Einstein's general theory of relativity uh, uh, also supports uh, the universe having a beginning of the Hubble telescope found a large mass of energy that was predicted by this theory so there are five lines of scientific evidence in addition one philosophical argument that you cannot have uh, an infinite number of moments before today because today is the end of all moments before today, but an infinite never has an end. So there must have been a beginning. So when you think of it, five scientific arguments, one philosophical argument, all support the so-called column or horizontal uh, argument, cosmological argument for the uh, existence of God. Well, he went pretty quick there. Now, if you didn't get all that, you can read it in Dr. Geisler's book. Uh, what book is probably the best one that explains all that, Dr. I Geisler? don't have enough faith to be an atheist uh, is a, a good book. It explains it in uh, popular uh, language, and uh, many people who have been unbelievers, even atheists, have been converted reading the book. Outstanding. What about the vertical one, Dr. Geisler? The vertical argument is like a, a pile of blocks. You know, you have block A, B, and C, and they're on the table. What's holding up block C is block B, and what's holding up B is A, and what's holding up the whole series is the table. Everything that's dependent is dependent on something, and you can't have uh, an infinite regress of those because you have to have something on which it's all uh, dependent. So uh, every part of the universe is dependent. Therefore, the whole universe is dependent because if you put a bunch of dependent things together, you don't get an independent thing, you get a bunch of dependent things. Uh, so the universe is dependent ultimately on something that is independent that's holding everything up. Excellent. That was a good summary of the cosmological argument. And the second one is the teleological argument, the argument from design. Well, explain this one to us. Well, here again, there's several forms of it. There's uh, the form of the teleological argument that looks at design itself in the world. And there are two forms of uh, design manifest in the world. One is in irreducible complexity and the other is in specified complexity. Specified complexity is what you have in a DNA and it's been found by applying the information theory to the DNA, which is four-letter alphabet uh, for a genetic code, uh, that it has exactly the same pattern as a written language. And we know that a written language was produced by an intelligent being. A book, for example, wasn't uh, the result of an explosion 
in a printing shop, uh, an intelligent being put those letters together, and the uh, DNA of the simplest form of life, a one-cell animal, holds a thousand volumes of the Encyclopedia uh, Britannica, so uh, it takes an intelligent being to produce that kind of specified complexity. The other one is the uh, one used by Dembski and others in the intelligent design movement, that uh, irreducible complexity, that is, a number of parts that you have to have at the same time in order for uh, the thing to function uh, is necessary. They couldn't have evolved slowly over a long period of time. For example, the human eye. You have to have the retina, you have to have an optic nerve, you have to have a lens, you have to have an incredible number of things all there. If you have 90% of a, of a human eye, you still are blind. You have to have all of it there at the same time. It couldn't evolve over a long period of time. But the only thing that can account for that, to have all those parts there at the same time, whenever you have a composition of parts, you have a composer. Uh, so this argument from irreducible complexity and specified complexity. Then there's a third one from uh, what's called anticipatory design, that anything uh, that is designed in such a way that it anticipates what's to come was done by an intelligent being. And the universe, called by way of the anthropic principle, from Anthropos, man, uh, was tweaked from the very beginning of the Big Bang. It was fine-tuned and tweaked for the emergence of human life, uh, so it anticipated uh, life, and if these conditions had not been there at the very beginning, life would never have emerged. So you have really three different teleological arguments. Fantastic. You know, the third one is called the moral argument. Explain that one to us. Well, it's very simple. Every moral law has a moral law giver. All legislation has a legislator. You never have a prescription without a prescriber. So that's a self-evident principle. Uh, the proof is on the minor premise, namely that uh, there is a moral prescription binding on all uh, persons, and that, of course, is easy to prove for many ways because you can't deny that there is a moral law with by saying that there's evil in the world like the atheists often say there can't be a god because there's injustice well how would you know it's not just unjust unless you knew what the standard of justice was so they're presupposing an ultimate standard of justice in order to argue against god secondly it's really self-defeating to deny all moral law because uh, the statement that uh, there are no absolutes, and I'm absolutely sure is itself a, an absolute. And any time uh, you talk to somebody who denies traditional moral principles, he set up some moral principles of his own. For example, he says you should always be tolerant, you should always respect other people's freedom, you should never commit genocide, you should always respect life. All of these are moral absolutes, but you can't have a moral absolute without an absolute moral lawgiver. You don't know, and what I hear often atheists say is, we would have a better world if we got rid of all religion. We'd have a better world uh, if we got rid of all God belief. But better implies a best. And so there, there, you know, it's, it's still the positing of a standard in order to gauge progress, right? 
Exactly. That's, that's, a, that's a third argument. I just gave two. There are about eight arguments we list in, in the book. You can't uh, measure progress unless you have some standard outside the world by which you're uh, measuring that C.S. Lewis made that same point, too. And also, you know, people will talk about the moral law just being something that we created. Well, believe me, uh, I didn't create the golden rule, and I don't like it, especially every time I treat someone else in a way in which I don't want to be treated. It's there. It's like uh, two plus two is four. I didn't make it. I don't like it when I make mathematical mistakes, but there is there is the mathematical table imposing itself on me. I don't like it when I'm irrational and contradictory. There's a law of contradiction. So we have mathematical laws imposed on us. We have rational laws imposed on us. And being moral creatures, we have moral laws uh, imposed on us, and uh, we certainly didn't create them because we don't like them, and we often disobey them, and we do, and this is another argument, we get guilt. Why should we be guilty if we created and it's not some moral being imposing this law upon us? You are hearing the man when it comes to Christian philosophy and apologetics, Dr. Norman Geisler of Southern Evangelical Seminary, that special guest. By the way, Dr. Geisler will be back with us next week week as well. Get this entire series and interview with Dr. Geisler when you go to evidenceandanswers.org evidenceandanswers.org Yes, Kevin, Dr. Norman Geisler is an author and speaker and he is also the president of a wonderful seminary out there in Charlotte, North Carolina, Southern Evangelical Seminary. Dr. Geisler, tell us a little bit about Southern Evangelical. Well, it's training people to do exactly what we're doing here, give a reason for the hope that's in them. We live in a world antagonistic to Christianity, a world of pluralism, relativism, and naturalism are three great uh, enemies, and we teach people to uh, pre-evangelize by defending the existence of God, the possibility of miracles, the nature of absolute uh, and exclusive truth, so that the gospel makes sense when we preach it to them. Fantastic. You know, and I am also a product of Southern Evangelical Seminary, a great seminary. If you want to study apologetics, that's one of the seminaries that you definitely want to look into. Uh, Dr. Geisler, where can they find information on Southern Evangelical? Well, ses.edu, uh, ses.edu, or they can call 1-800-77-TRUTH. That's pretty easy to remember, 1-800-77-TRUTH. A fine seminary with a fine faculty, one of the best if you want to study in this whole area of apologetics. Now, we're talking about evidence for the existence of God. We went over three of the basic arguments. Well, now we're going to discuss some of the arguments against those three. Now, Dr. Norm Geisler, we're going to start with one of the great philosophers of the modern era, Immanuel Kant. Many have been taught in philosophy that Immanuel Kant showed that all the proofs for God are invalid. Now, what did he teach, and did he indeed show these to be invalid proofs for God? Well, he attempted to, but he failed, number one. Number two, he still believed in God. Many people think that Kant uh, didn't believe in God. He did. Uh, and number three, uh, when he wrote his second book, you're referring to the Critique of Pure Reason, his first one. When he wrote his second one, he said, Nevertheless, when I look at the starry heavens above and the moral law within, uh, I cannot help but believe in God. So uh, Immanuel Kant uh, never got rid of God, and his arguments were invalid. They were invalid because uh, he, uh, he had a false uh, dilemma. You know, he would say uh, things like, oh, well, everything must have a cause, therefore there's a first cause, but uh, if everything has a, a cause, there can't be a first cause because it must have a cause, too, and you can go on forever. 
Well, uh, what he did is uh, one of those two was false. Uh, it's false to say it must go on forever. Uh, it's true to say that everything has a cause and there must be a first cause, but it's not true to say that the first cause must have a cause because that's contradictory to say that the first cause must have a cause. It's first, and because it's first, it doesn't have one. It's the uncaused cause. So everything that is caused uh, needs a cause, but when you get to the uncaused, first cause, it doesn't need a cause. Didn't he also state that the ontological argument was an invalid proof for the existence of God, and since the other arguments are built on that, therefore they are invalid as well? He did. That's exactly right. And he's wrong, because there is no ontological sleight of hand in this argument. Show me where there's an ontological argument in this universe had a beginning. Everything that has a beginning had a beginner. You're not starting with an idea of God and then are, are arguing back to the existence of God. You're starting with a world, a changing, finite, uh, temporal world, and arguing back to God. So it's not an ontological argument at all. Right. Now, briefly explain, uh, we better briefly explain, what is the ontological argument? The ontological argument, uh, ontos means being, and it's the argument that you can start with the idea of a supreme being, and from that very idea you can conclude that there must be God. For example, uh, the idea of a triangle is that it has three sides, uh, and therefore uh, if a triangle exists, it must have three sides. So he said if God exists, uh, he must necessarily uh, exist. The problem is that it begs the question by assuming uh, that a triangle exists or that God exists. If there is a triangle, it must have three sides. Uh, but what if there is no triangle at all? If there is a God, he must necessarily be. Uh, but what if there is no God at all? So he begs the question by assuming God. Now, one of the arguments against the cosmological argument is one from inflationary cosmology, that there are thousands of universes that have erupted, and it just so happens that this one can sustain life. How do we answer that argument? I say that that uh, is uh, really interesting, isn't it? Uh, why is it that this can sustain life? How could a universe be so fine-tuned and tweaked from the very beginning that life would emerge if anything was off in the least degree? We wouldn't have life without there being an intelligent cause. Uh, it's the argument that somehow chance can explain the universe, but chance is not a cause. Chance is just a description of fortuitous events. Uh, everything, every event has a cause, so the argument really boils down to this. Either the universe, since we know it had a beginning, had a natural cause or it had an intelligent cause. There are only two kinds of uh, causes, and it couldn't have had a natural cause because there was no nature before it started. Therefore, it must have had a supernatural intelligent cause. Well, another argument against the cosmological argument is that the universe doesn't have a beginning, but it expands and it contracts in an endless cycle. How do we answer that? Well, first of all, uh, if you took a ball and you bounced it, uh, it would uh, bounce not as high as from where you dropped it, and then the next time it would bounce even less high until it petered out. So if you put the universe, uh, put that process in reverse, the same thing would happen to the universe. You know, it would expand and contract and expand and contract until finally 
uh, it wouldn't contract again. So it cannot be endless uh, because the second law of thermodynamics, which applies to all closed systems, all closed isolated systems like the whole universe is, uh, you're always losing, you're always running down. And if you're running down, then it must have had a beginning. So it doesn't matter whether it's bouncing a long time. It's uh, sooner or later it's going to run down and peter out, and you're right back to the same fact that you need a cause for it. Now, here's an argument I often hear against the second argument, the argument from design, and that's this. How can an omnipotent and omniscient God have created a universe with so many flaws? Well, how do you know there are flaws? You know, you're saying the universe is imperfect, and where do you get this standard of perfection by which you're measuring it, whether it's moral or uh, intellectual? Well, uh, look at avocados. I mean, look how big the, the pit is in the avocado. That's too, that, that's, that's too big. <laughs> well, it's like the story of the atheist and the little atheist boy and the Christian boy went for a walk, and they passed a watermelon patch, and the atheist said, now look, that's ridiculous. Look at those great big watermelons on those little tiny vines. They passed an oak tree, and he said, look, look at those little tiny acorns on this huge oak tree. If there was a God, he'd certainly reverse that. And so they sat under the tree to have uh, a little rest, and they fell asleep, and uh, acorn uh, fell on the atheist's head and <laughs> plopped off, and the little boy said, see, that's why God put the little ones on the oak trees. <laughs> it have been a watermelon. <laughs> would have squashed you. Uh, so we are assuming that we know better design than God. You know, it's like the appendices uh, in the human body. There were 180 of them in Huxley's day. They listed 180 things that uh, were appendices, useless parts of the human body. Now the list is down to about six, and we know uh, purposes for for them as well. So uh, just to assume that we don't know a good reason for something, or it looks not to be perfect uh, to us, doesn't mean it really is imperfect, uh, or there is no reason for it. Now, here's another argument I hear against the moral argument, or the third one we presented. Our morality is not the result of a moral lawgiver, but our instinct for survival, first for ourselves, our family, and the species. It's just a basic instinct that we've developed through the evolutionary process. How do we respond to that? Well, first of all, C.S. Lewis responded to that in Mere Christianity. He has a whole chapter on it, on herd instinct. Uh, sometimes uh, the moral law tells us not to do what our instinct is. There's no instinct stronger than the uh, instinct for self-preservation. And yet, uh, if uh, your uh, baby son uh, or daughter fell into the pool, uh, and you, even if you're not a good swimmer, your instinct tells you to dive in and save that baby. So the moral law uh, takes precedence even over instinct because uh, there are people who act on the basis of the moral law contrary to instinct time after time. You know, this has been a fantastic interview. You're getting a wealth of information from Dr. Norman Geisler. Dr. Geisler, don't you have a uh, website at which people can go to for more information? Uh, yeah, normgeisler.com is my website. And, of course, the seminary is scs.edu, where you can take courses external in your own home. You don't have to come to Charlotte, North Carolina. Of course, it is the most beautiful, nicest place in the country to live. <laughs> yeah, uh, how about that? <laughs> And you had a, had a pretty good football team this year. Not bad. They almost made it to the Super Bowl. They made it once, and once almost. Dr. Geisler, in all the years that you've, you've debated atheists uh, in every state here, 
Uh, how do these three arguments that we present, the cosmological, the teleological, and the moral argument, how do they stand up against the arguments that the atheists have presented? They stand up very well. I've never seen anyone who can really refute these arguments. They, they give objections to it, but the objections are answerable as the ones that uh, you brought up uh, tonight and others, but they can't really uh, refute the arguments because the arguments are sound. You can show them the elevator, people getting off it, the lights on, there's a floor in there, but you can't force him to get in the elevator. But you can tell them it's a whole lot better than that dark elevator where you can't see the floor and nobody got off of it. Christianity says, take a step of faith in the light, don't take a leap of faith in the dark. Einstein said that the, the laws of nature and the laws of mathematics are so incredible that there must be a master physicist and a master mathematician up there. You can't, wherever you look, through the microscope or through the telescope, uh, you see incredible design that calls for an incredible designer. So it's not that it's not clear. It's that man suppresses the evidence. Romans 1.18 says it is clear, and, and following, it is clear, but they're suppressing or rejecting it. Fantastic. Folks, we're going to have Dr. Geisler back with us next week. And as you can see, it's a great interview, and you're going to learn a lot. So you want to be with us here at Evidence and Answers. And thank you for listening today. We're hoping you'll see just how far-reaching this issue is. At stake is how we view ourselves, our origins. Are we just molecules in motion, no different than other organisms accidentally spawned on this spinning planet? Or were we made for a purpose? We believe there's good news here. God created the heavens and the earth, and he seeks relationship with every one of us. And we bring guests on the show to give the evidence for that worldview. Pat Zuckerman has dozens of interviews with leading scholars, as well as his own teaching and information, available right now at evidenceandanswers.org. Download past shows and browse the articles and topics on the world's greatest questions. Theology, philosophy, apologetics, world religions, debates with atheists, and cutting-edge information to equip you as an ambassador for Christ. And if you're a skeptic or maybe of another faith or you're a seeker, you'll greatly benefit from these resources. Go to evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And keep in mind that when you purchase and download past shows, you help keep Evidence and Answers on the air and expanding. So please consider helping us keep a quality apologetic show on the air and on the web. That's evidenceandanswers.org. I'm Kevin Harris, and on behalf of Pat Zuckerman, thanks so much for being with us. God bless, and we'll see you next time.